this so you can get home and get warm and uh, drink hot cocoa and eat soup and all that fun stuff. But uh, what a blessing to have as many of you here, and we know there are several of you joining us online. We welcome you, uh, and we look forward to spending this time together considering the truth of God's word. Uh, Let me open in a word of prayer, and then as is our custom, I will have you stand as I read for you our text, which will be found in Romans chapter 1, so Romans 1, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 18, a message that I've now retitled, The Gospel of God and the Wrath of God, so fun stuff, keep us warm in this cold weather. Before we look at the text, let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. We recognize from your word that if it were not for his righteousness, for his perfection, for all the good that he accomplished while on this earth, living out his life in full obedience to you, even being obedient to the point of death, death on the cross, that apart from that, uh, we would have no hope of eternal life. We recognize the Apostle Paul who prayed that he wanted to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we gather and we pray that we might be in awe of this righteousness, that in your wisdom and in your plan, in your mercy and goodness, you have imputed to those who believe. You have charged to the account of those who would declare their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that you look upon them not as sinners but as upon possessing the very righteousness of Christ, Christ who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. And so, Father, we pray that we might be delighted all the more in this wondrous salvation that has brought to us the righteousness of God. Father, bless us as we consider such truths. As we gather this morning, we're mindful of uh, the frailty of our being. We're so cold outside, we recognize we need warmth and covering. But Father, we thank you that these are but reminders that you are the God who provides for all circumstances. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And so, Father, may we be grateful for the homes that we have, for the heat that we uh, experience within them for your blessings of food and provisions of all that uh, we have temporally. But may we bless you most of all for the wonder and the provision, the eternal provision of Christ. And so now as we turn to your word, bless us. Help us to have minds focused upon these truths. Help us to know how to apply them. Lord, not only through the prompting of the preacher, but Lord, may your spirit prompt us to consider those areas of sin where we have not given over to you, confessed to you uh, the the habits that keep us from having a, a great relationship with you. But, Father, may we also just recognize those things that we could do better so that we might truly walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. So we ask your blessing upon this time as we consider this text, thanking you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand as I read for us Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Romans 1, verses 15 through 18. The Apostle Paul speaking, writing to the saints who are in Rome. And so he writes, 
So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So in the reading of God's word, may we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. As you may have noticed, our text this morning includes several verses that we have already considered. And we've added only one additional verse, verse 18. And while it is true that we've already looked at verses 15 through 17, as I indicated, it is imperative, I think by Paul's own desire and, and the, just the history of looking at the book of Romans, that we get these verses correct. If we're to understand and appreciate the rest of the letter of Romans, we need to make sure we understand these properly if we are to extract the depth of the wonder of the salvation that Paul will go at length to describe in the rest of this letter. Therefore, I want to rehearse a bit, revisit verses 15 through 17, giving you just another little bit of thought on these. I, I share all of this, and I say a bit in jest. I'm 56 or 57, I forget. That's what happens when you get older. And uh, I realize that I will not probably preach the gospel or the, the book of Romans again in this lifetime. So I'm going to extract what I can. So we're going to go back and look a little bit deeper here at verses 15 through 17 so that we can properly link it to verse 18. I note that most of your Bibles probably did you a great disservice, and that is that at the end of verse 17, it puts some kind of chapter header, and it breaks verse 17 from verse 18. But I would say grammatically, that's an error. And so I determined that we need to take all of this block together. So we're going to look at verses 15 through 17 and link it to verse 18 to see what Paul is conveying to us concerning the gospel. Let me offer to you the following outline then that includes verses 15, not only verses 15 through 18, but will give us a track to follow through the rest of chapter 1. We'll see in verse 15 the readiness to preach the gospel Verse 16, the realities of the gospel. It should just be going. Just go ahead and... And uh, the remedy of the gospel in verse 17. The reality of God's wrath in verse 18. The re reasons for God's wrath in verses 19 through 23. And the results of God's wrath in verses 24 through 20... Or I'll get it, 24 through 32. Now, that's a lot of ground to cover. And uh, you'll notice that some of those have some big blocks of text that we'll be considering. But in essence, beginning with verse 15, Paul explains that he's eager. We've talked about this. He's eager. He's excited to preach the gospel with the rest then of chapter 1 expounding upon really this one thought. Why? Paul, why are you eager to preach the gospel? If I were to ask any of you, why are you eager to preach the gospel? How would you answer? You might have to say, are you, am I eager to preach 
the gospel. Well, that's what Paul is doing, and he's emphasizing at the end. What does he emphasize? All the reasons, and we've talked about some of them. We'll explore a few of that a little bit more in a moment. But the main emphasis upon why Paul wants to preach the gospel, why he's eager, is because of this topic, the wrath of God. The wrath of God, Paul will tell us, is not simply a future event. It will be worse in the future, but Paul, as we'll come to see, says the wrath of God is now. And if there's a reason why the good news needs to be preached, it's because of God's wrath against sinners and sin. And so the wrath of God becomes the main impetus. It it is what makes Paul eager to preach the good news. I believe Paul wants to have his readers to have a correct understanding of the gospel. And for the gospel uh, and the reason why is because the gospel is the very foundation of the Christian faith. This is the gospel that had been spoken of by the prophets, Paul said. It is the gospel that is Christ-centered and Christ-focused. It is the gospel that results in obedience to God's word, and it is the gospel that gives peace with God and assures the believer of his or her deliverance from the wrath of God. In in Romans 1, 15 through 18, we have nothing but that which is life-changing. These are life-altering truths. Therefore, I do not want to rush past such truths. While concise, we find in these verses some theological concepts that would take a lifetime to wrap our minds around if we would understand and appreciate the fullness of the gospel of God. Theologically speaking, Paul is pushing us, if you want to say this, if you can remember maybe your parents doing this, or maybe you're the parent that did this to your children, you're pushing your children into the deeper waters now. You need to learn to swim. And you've done dog paddling enough, and you've stood on the little, in the little uh, kiddie pool enough, and now he's saying, let's go just a bit deeper. The truths of the gospel are simultaneously simple and yet deeply profound. How can I say that? Because the gospel is simple enough for a child to believe, for a child to, as we sometimes say, ask Jesus into their heart to forgive them their sins and to give them the promise of eternal life. A child can believe it, and a child can be transformed. At the same time, for an adult, the gospel is so much more. And prayerfully, so much grander. An adult believer is to hunger and probe these truths to such a degree that we should, even as the angels long to look into the things of salvation, we who are the recipients of the gospel and of its salvation should long to look. Beloved, what we believe about God, the depth of the truth that we understand about God, has a direct impact upon how we will live for God. The better you know God, the better you live for God. And so Paul wants us to know God and to know him well. And to know his truths and to know them well. Paul explains this reality of knowing God deeply to the church at Corinth. If you allow me to uh, do this excursus here in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 through 3. Notice the contrast that Paul makes 
He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. So that's how he wanted to speak to them. But notice how he refers to them. But as men of flesh, as infants, babes in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? I do not want to be a mere man. There's nothing in the scripture that says that you and I are to be mere men. We're to be what? Spiritual men. We can be spiritual giants. The church at Corinth had not sufficiently matured in their faith Paul's pushing the Romans into the deep theological waters, and he says to the Corinthians, I can't even get past milk with you yet. And because they had not matured in their faith in Christ and the gospel, this resulted in the Corinthians' mistaken and sinful behaviors. Because they had not matured in the faith, they were experiencing things like this. They had lacked unity. They were struggling with sexual sin. They took one another to court. They had misguided views about marriage. They indulged in their so-called Christian liberty, and they had chaotic worship practices. And if that's not enough, Paul spends a lot of time by saying, you guys don't even understand the spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Spirit of God. So instead of being spiritual men, he says, you are acting like men of flesh. You are acting like mere men. Well, we don't want to be like that. And so Paul is taking his readers now deeper. And so let us begin to address the key ideas in these verses. Uh, we're going to just rehearse a few of these so that we can link them to verse 18. But we begin back in verse 15, and we see Paul's readiness to preach the gospel. Verse 15, so for my part... I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This will be a brief reminder. Paul makes clear his desire, what he desires to do when he gets together with believers. Now, I'm going to make an application for you here. What is Paul's desire when he gets there? Now, if we get together with folks that we haven't seen in a while, we might want to discuss uh, politics. Paul could have talked about the latest gladiator games. We would say, who's going to win the Super Bowl? We have all these different things we might want to talk about. We might get on the phone later today and talk with some family in California or somewhere and say, you know, it's minus three degrees here. But Paul's not eager to talk about such temporal earthly things. Paul says he doesn't want to catch up on such things. No, his resolve, his intention is to preach. That is to declare, to expound the truths of the gospel of God. Oh, that we would have such the same heart of readiness. We need to be ready to talk to one another about the gospel. We need to be ready to talk to those whom we have not even met about the gospel. You know, for us, it's probably a little bit easier. I mean, I could go and have lunch with Gordon, and we'll, we don't have any problem talking about the gospel, do we? We'll just get right to it. But we might not be quite as ready to talk to the couple of guys sitting in the table over about the gospel. But Paul says he's ready to preach the, go the gospel to those whom he has not even met. Well, that's his readiness, and we're not going to belabor that because we've already considered that. But then we looked at last week the realities, or a couple weeks ago, the realities of the gospel. Uh, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
recall these reasons why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel. And, and that's where we're getting ourselves to link up with verse 18, because Paul uses four conjunctions in the Greek. It's the little word for, F-O-R, and we can translate that because. So we can see, read verses 15 through 18 this way. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, verse 16, because the gospel is nothing to be ashamed of. Again, verse 16, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Verse 17, because the gospel reveals the righteousness from God that brings salvation. And then in verse 18, the final link, because the wrath of God is currently revealed from heaven, indicating we need salvation. God's already angry at sin. God already is displaying his displeasure against sin right now. If you will just open your eyes, if you'll just look at the culture, you will see God's displeasure with the sin of humanity. That's why the gospel needs to be preached, and that's where Paul is going. Now, when Paul preached the gospel, it was not always met with joy and enthusiasm. In fact, generally, when Paul preached the gospel, it was accompanied with hardships, including things like this, being imprisoned, stoned, beaten with rods, mocked, called a blasphemer. How's that? The majority of those who heard his message regarded it as either shameful or foolish at best. And there were others who considered Paul and Christians as vile cannibals because they heard about the Lord's Supper when they ate the body of Christ and drank the blood of Christ. And so they thought they were just evil, vile cannibals. It's in spite of all of this that Paul says in verse 16 what? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Nothing will discourage Paul from preaching the gospel to anyone that God placed in his path. And I believe there's another application for us. Do you see people that are in your way, in your path? Don't look at them as they're in your way. And when they're in your path, do you see them? As those who need to hear the gospel. That's Paul's outlook. That's his worldview. Beloved, let us pray that our words and actions would not project then in any way that we are ashamed of the gospel. If we keep silent when we ought to speak out because of fear of being scorned or because we might be looked upon as being politically incorrect, then guess what? We can't say we're not ashamed. To be sure, our culture is increasingly contemptuous of Christianity. And, uh, and, and our culture is rejecting every mooring of a Christian worldview. Our culture tells us that we as believers are backwards in our thinking. That we're not progressive enough. That we're on the wrong side of history. You ever ask yourself, why would they say such things? Why is our culture against biblical Christianity? Beloved, the gospel reveals that humanity, that every single person, is inherently sinful. We're all corrupt. We're all broken. We're all ruined beyond repair. There is no fix, humanly speaking, 
to the dilemma in which we find ourselves. And the plain reading of scripture says that we are corrupt and wicked in our nature. We're corrupt and wicked in our wills. We're corrupt and wicked even in our thoughts. The gospel declares all of this. The gospel declares that because of the sin nature, every person deserves eternal damnation. They deserve the wrath of God. And there's not one thing a person can do to help himself from this fate. Therefore, the gospel demands that any sense of personal pride, that any sense of self-reliance be cast aside, and that you would look solely and deeply upon the omnipotent sovereign God of heaven to rescue you. Beloved, there is nothing in the gospel, not one thing in the gospel that is compatible with the current worldview of the secular mind. And so it has to attack, attack. This is the reality of the gospel. But the reality of the gospel also tells us that there's only one source of power that's able to save any person from this desperate and helpless condition. And the reality of the gospel alone is that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel reveals to humanity that God alone is merciful, that God alone is all loving and able to resolve the conflicts between his holiness and our sinfulness. And Paul states unequivocally that only this gospel, this message that you know, this message that you have recognized is your only hope. Paul tells us, that this gospel alone has the power to save. I, as a preacher, cannot save anyone in this room. No evangelist that we bring in can save a person. Not any church can save a person from this condition. There's not one person able to save himself. The scripture is clear. As Jeremiah 13.23, which some of you are familiar with, unequivocally and rhetorically asks, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer being what? No, you can't change those things. It's impossible. It's built into the very core and being. And then Jeremiah goes on to say, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Meaning you can't. There's no one who does good. Not even one. No one is able to save himself. No, not by doing good works. Not by being spiritually mature. All of our church attendance. All of our giving of our time. Every page of scripture that you ever read. Every prayer that you ever pray. Each act of obedience to the commands of Christ. Every sharing of the gospel. While these are all truly noble, uh, while these are expected behaviors of every believer, not one of them, not one of them, even if performed with all faithfulness for many years, will ever be sufficient to merit your salvation. Not because I've been a pastor standing in a pulpit seeking to faithfully proclaim the gospel for 28 years. That doesn't make me any better in the sight of God. Because either I am completely better in the sight of God because of the perfections of Christ, or I am not. What would any of our good works 
ever achieve for God. We can take the combined good works of this group today. And how does that contribute to God? Is he diminished if we do not do any good works? Would his kingdom fail if we would not participate? Beloved, even if we were to do everything we could, we could not do enough to merit salvation. We ought to rejoice then that God's grace is free, that it is a gift, because if it were not, we could never afford it. The truth is we are powerless to save ourselves. Paul will expound on this. We read in the very familiar words of Romans 5, verses 6 and 8. Notice the highlighted words there. For while we were still what? Helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But, while, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, we need the power of the gospel to be saved. And until we come to the depth of our wretchedness, to the depth of our inability, we will not see our need to respond to the gospel of God. God alone has the power to save. Do you realize that it's in his nature to save? It's part of what he is. As God was sovereign over creation, so too he is sovereign over salvation. The gospel is the power of God that results in salvation. And another reality that we looked at is the universality of the gospel. We preach it to anyone and to everyone. I love, of course, uh, Mark 16, 15 that says, preach the gospel to all creation. And my paraphrase is always what? If it moves, preach the gospel. I don't care if it's the tree. I don't care if it's your cat. I don't care if it's your neighbor, a stranger at Walmart. Preach the gospel, practice always, communicate always. The gospel of God, it results in the salvation, verse, uh, it says in verse 16, of everyone who believes. The gospel is both in, in, eternal in its impact and universal in its application. What do we mean by the gospel is universal in its application? Let me offer you two things. First, when a person is saved, understand this. This is what we're talking about, the righteousness of God that changes a person. When a person is saved, everything changes about the person. Everything. So if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, well, I, I've come halfway to Christ, you've come none of the way to Christ. I do some things to the glory of God, but I really have these other things that I, well, you haven't come then. Because the gospel, it changes everything about you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old's gone. The new has come. I want to dwell in the newness so that I know the power of God that has changed me. The word for salvation is the word soterra, and it means to save or to rescue or to deliver. And it can be used to speak of physical rescue. If you're out in the middle of the ocean and the Coast Guard comes and they send that little guy in the helicopter to come pick you out of the water, guess what? You've just been saved. You've been rescued. The, the word is used in this physical sense in, even in the scripture. And consider that Noah experienced physical salvation. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, by faith... 
Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. We're not talking about spiritual salvation. They literally got into a boat. They literally floated on that boat. They literally landed on the mountain of Ararat, and they literally got off the boat. They were literally saved from the flood. Such a physical such as a physical and literal salvation. But the word for salvation is more often used, not in that physical sense, but a spiritual sense. And we see this in the words of Jesus to the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for Salvation, spiritual deliverance, is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If you are saved, you will worship him in spirit and in truth. Beloved, spiritual salvation saves, it delivers a person from sin, from self, and from the deceptions of Satan. We speak of that often, but Paul's got a bigger argument than sin and self and Satan. It is the spiritual sense of salvation that tells us we need to be and are by faith saved, by the, saved from the wrath of God. We read in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by the blood of Christ, we shall be, here's our word, saved, delivered from the wrath of God through him. Everything about sin and self and Satan deserves the wrath of God. That's what we need to be saved from. But the gospel is also universal, not only in that it changes this person in saving them this way, but it is universal to whom it applies. The gospel is the power of God resulting in salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek. And so we come to see that the gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter your race or your ethnicity. It does not matter your socioeconomic sta uh, status, whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you are uh, you only have a high school education or you have your, your Ph.D. in whatever degree. The gospel is for all. In light of the sin that makes the gospel necessary, and in light of the fact that the gospel alone saves the person who believes, let us next note, verse 17, the remedy for the gospel. The remedy not uh, of the gospel. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. If Romans 1.16 informs us that people are saved by Faith in the gospel, trusting in the person and work of Christ. Paul next tells us how, how that person is saved. What is the process? What is this remedy that the gospel provides that actually saves us? And we learn that the power of the gospel that saves is based upon the righteousness of God. Or as we put it last week, and I want to burn this into your minds, it really should read the righteousness from God. This is a righteousness that God provides to those who believe. This is the righteousness that originates in God. It originates and has its source in God. Therefore, it's not human. It's not 
anything that we generate. It's actually foreign. It's an alien righteousness. It is so wholly different than anything you've experienced that if you have not experienced it, or you think you've experienced it, and there's not a lot of change in your life, I tell you, you haven't experienced it. Here in verse 17, Paul paraphrases the prophet Habakkuk, saying, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Beloved, the point is clear. It is not our own righteousness that saves us. Later in Romans 3.10, Paul reminds his readers there is none righteous, not even one. And you have to be 100% righteous in order to be saved. And if you are not 100% righteous, you deserve the wrath of God. You can keep the whole law but stumble in just one point, and it, then you are what? Guilty of the whole law, and the wrath of God abides on you. Beloved, the remedy for humanity's sinful condition is God. And it's God imputing his very own righteousness to the believer at the moment of salvation. Let me remind you that the, that verb impute means to, re, uh, means to credit, to count to another, to reckon to someone an attribute or characteristic. And so we learn that sal the salvation of Romans 1.16 is God's crediting to the believer the righteousness of Christ, even though they themselves are not righteous themselves. That's the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. To receive such righteousness from God is to have God, I, I love this idea, God looks at you, he sees you, not as a sinner, you know yourself to be a sinner, but he looks at you as not being sinful, but as possessing the righteousness of his own son. He's chosen to do that. He's credited to your account. He gazes upon you and sees the beauty and the wonder and the merit of Christ. And so it's not our own righteousness. We've done nothing to earn it or merit it. Rather, God, as an act of grace, chooses to treat us as if the righteousness of Christ is our very own. Talk about heavy theology. Yet, this is what Paul wants us to understand, and we need to get this right. The righteousness of God that secures our salvation is a faith. It is a faith alone. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is that? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is the righteousness that comes from God, and it is completely unrelated to anything we do. Everyone who has ever lived and everyone who ever will live all fall short of God's Glory. They fall short of earning God's salvation. It does not matter how diligently or sincerely you try. The only way a person is declared righteous, the only way God sees him as possessing the righteousness of Christ is when God chooses to impart his righteousness to those whom he draws to Christ as an act of grace. Isn't that what we said last week? Salvation is out of faith into faith, from faith to faith. Starts with faith and ends with faith. The point is that salvation is the gift of God, and it is a gift received by faith alone, not as a result of works. Well, this brings us to our final consideration, that which should warm our hearts. This last point as we consider the reality of God's wrath. 
the reality of the wrath of God. Paul now links this final idea of why he's eager to preach the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul is so keenly aware of the scope and the magnitude of God's wrath. We shy away from talking about it. I might urge you that you're going to have some time this afternoon maybe drinking your hot cocoa or drinking a hot cup of coffee or a cappuccino if you have one of those machines, whatever it might be, that you pick up a copy, uh, you can get online and, and read a copy of Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And your heart will be warmed. Paul is so aware of the magnitude of the wrath of God under which he tells us every ungodly and every unrighteous person dwells who is not ungodly, who is not unrighteous. And I'm not looking for the Sunday school answer. Well, I believe in Jesus. I'm okay. We're talking about without Christ, who is who is godly without Christ? Who is righteous without Christ? So no sooner does Paul introduce his readers to the grand and glorious idea that righteousness is from God and you can have it by faith that he then introduces to us another revelation. The wrath of God is here. The wrath of God is now. Open your eyes, he will say, as we'll look through the rest of chapter 1. And you will not be able to miss the fact that God is, that God is now turning people over to their sins as a demonstration of his wrath. Why does he do this? Beloved, no one will fully appreciate the good news. In fact, they won't see the good news as being good news until they see it against the backdrop of our guilt before God. That's the bad news. The bad news is you deserve God's wrath. The bad news is you are not good. The bad news is you are an unrighteous sinner that deserves eternal condemnation. Now, all of a sudden, a righteousness from God that saves me, that's good news. That would be great news. This is the only remedy. One of the reasons I believe why people are not particularly concerned with the message of the gospel is that they ultimately do not understand anything about the character of God or the commands of God. If people were aware of God and his anger against sin, if they were more aware of why God has given commandments to keep us from sin, we would be more moved and motivated to flee as fast as we could to hear and receive the remedy of the gospel. The problem is people are so steeped in their sin, so hardened in their hearts, that they have no fear of God. Simply put, people choose not to believe in God's wrath they cannot conceive, therefore, of him as being capable of having any anger towards them. I mean, I understand God being angry at those other people 
over there across the street, angry at those other people in, their, in the, those other lands where they practice paganism. But how could God ever be angry with someone so lovable and cute as me? And so all they want to hear the preacher proclaim is not that they deserve wrath, not that they've fallen short of God's glory, not that their sin and their lifestyle choices will condemn them. They want to hear the preacher say, well, God is love, that God is tolerant, that God benevolently looks past any of your shortcomings. What are your shortcomings? They're called sin. Yet what makes grace so amazing is that it comes from the very God who has every right to treat us with contempt and disdain for the way we've disregarded him and sin against him daily. We are aware that the world hates the idea of a wrathful God, and yet the scriptures require it. The gospel by which we are saved from eternal damnation absolutely makes no sense if God does not condemn sinful people to eternal punishment. God's infinite grace can only be properly appreciated if we comprehend God's infinite holiness. And we can only appreciate that if we understand his infinite anger towards sin. Beloved, forgiveness of sin can only be valued in proportion to our understanding of God's wrath toward sinners. Let me say that again. Forgiveness of sin, which I think most of you would claim to have experienced, but it will only be valued in proportion. You'll only appreciate it as much as you understand God's wrath toward sinners. So Paul doesn't start off with an easy message. I want to preach the gospel. It's going to bring to you the knowledge of the righteousness that will save you. And why do you need to be saved? Because you're under God's wrath. People like to imagine God as being only a God of love. The world prefers a God who might be strict and might have rules, but in the end he relents and welcomes everyone into paradise. After all, most people believe that if they do their best, then surely a loving God would not condemn them to hell for a simple few missteps along the way. Beloved, we must remember that we are made in God's image. And what is that image? That image includes the idea of holiness and righteousness and a hatred of all sin. Therefore, scriptures insist that the God of wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Beloved, our God is perfect in all his ways. He's perfect in his nature. All of his attributes play out in perfect harmony. And trying to, to just think through all of that is a wonder, isn't it? This means that God is not only the God of love, but he is the God of wrath. And his wrath and love are found in equal proportions in himself. Our God is as perfectly just and holy as he is gracious and merciful. And so we read in a psalm like Psalm 45 verse 7, this perfect harmony where we read, For you, God, have loved righteousness and hate wickedness. You see the 
the perfect balance. He completely loves all that is good and right, and he completely hates all that is wicked and evil. There is no contradiction in that. One attribute does not trump the other. His love is not greater than his wrath. His justice is not less than his mercy. While the world claims God is not fair for being wrathful, the testimony of Scripture is that he has always, always been angry with human sin. We see it in Genesis 6 as God spoke of his anger towards the wickedness of men in the days of Noah, and therefore what did he do about it? He wiped out the earth with a flood. Is that anger against sin? We could consider God's wrath towards Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus in Exodus 14. We can ponder God's anger against Aaron and Miriam when they were punished by God for challenging the authority of Moses in Numbers 12. There are many pagan gods to whom God himself revealed his power by means of his wrath, like Sennacherib in 2 Kings, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, Belshazzar in Daniel 5. Beloved, contrary to what many believe, the statement that the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is the God of love is misguided. It is true that Jesus spoke the beloved words of John 3.16. How many of you have heard this one before? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everybody knows that verse. But we don't read some 20 verses later. The very sobering words of John 3.36. He who believes in the son has eternal life. Praise the Lord. But he who does not obey the son, meaning he doesn't believe, will not see life. But what does it say? But the wrath of God doesn't say this, the wrath of God will come upon him. No, it says the wrath of God currently abides on him in this moment. Isn't that consistent with the wrath of God is revealed from heaven? The teaching of the wrath of God is foundational to the New Testament church of which we are a New Testament church. Consider these verses. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, what things, Paul? Unrighteous living. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, meaning it's happening right now. Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things, such unrighteous living, that the, un the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And by the way, when it says will come, it's not implying just a future thing. It's just that it's always coming upon them. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, this is not the rapture <laughs> because in this time it's what? Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me just have you consider a few thoughts here. And we begin with the wrath of God. We're looking now at verse 18. The wrath of God is not an act of emotion. The Greek word orge is, is, speaks of intensity, to be sure. 
But it's not to be understood on our part as an out-of-control burst of anger from the Almighty God. It is not the little child poking and probing the, the parent until the parent just blows up and yells at the child. It is not something like that. We often associate wrath with flying off the handle or being so belligerent. This is not the idea conveyed in verse 18. The word wrath signifies, beloved, both the attitude and the action of God towards sin and towards those who practice it. This is God's attitude and action towards sin and those who practice it. John Murray, in his exposition of Romans 1.18, put it this way. He said, wrath is the holy revulsion of God being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness. He's revolted by sin. He despises unrighteousness and ungodliness. So when Paul will ask later in the letter, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound, and says, may it never be, we can come all the way back to this verse and recognize this is why Paul said that. Why would you continue in the very sin that is a revulsion to God? I would have you notice in verse 18 that this wrath of God, like the righteousness of God in verse 17 speaks of the origin or source of the attribute. We might rightly read verse 18 as the wrath from God is revealed. And as noted earlier, God's wrath has always been against human sin. And it will always be against human sin. The wrath of God is a revelation of his holiness, a revelation of his justice, a revelation of his perfection, a revelation that he is not unrighteous in himself. He can't be ungodly because he is God. It is his righteous response to our unrighteousness as the rest of the verse reveals. And so we consider the present revelation of the wrath of God. The wrath of God against sinners is not merely a future event. We said that. It is the present reality. The wrath of God, it says in our text, is revealed. We might translate it as, is presently being revealed or manifested. It's in the present tense. So even as we are drawing breath in this room, the wrath of God is revealed. Even as you will watch whatever's happening in the world on the latest news, you see the wrath of God being revealed. It's happening now. It happens continually. As we've read already from John 3:36, whoever does not presently believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God it presently abides on him. The wrath of God is already being revealed and while it is not uh, re, uh, and while it is and has been revealed in a variety of ways against unrepentant sinners throughout history, Paul indicates for us in this chapter, how the wrath of God will continue to reveal itself. Note with me, if you will look in Romans 1 at three verses, verses 24, 26, and 28. Look at verses 24, 26, and 28. And we have a formula by which Paul states this. This is how the wrath of God is being revealed. And it says this, God gave them over. God gave them over. Do you see that? 
God's wrath is presently manifested, it says here, in God giving them over, or we might say it this way, that God is giving up the ungodly. He's giving up the unrighteousness. He's giving up the unbelieving to what? How does he punish them? He lets them sin and experience the consequences of their sin. He lets them choose their own sin. You want free will? This is what you get. Choose your sin. And it will all lead to the same place. The eternal experience of the wrath of God. Paul says this is God's judgment upon them for their sins. In other words, listen, because this is an application. By getting to indulge your sins... Or let me put it this way, whenever you choose to indulge your sin, whatever sin floats your boat, be different for each one of us. Do you know what you're experiencing? The wrath of God. Is it how, how is it that I can just continue to go on sinning in this particular thing and it doesn't seem like God's doing anything to me? He is. He's giving you up. Notice that the same verb is used in verse 17 to speak of the righteousness of God as being revealed. Same verb that's used here in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. It's manifested. And this wrath in verse 18 is it, it, said to come from a place that you might not normally think of wrath coming from. It comes from heaven. Why is that important? When we think about sin and wickedness and evil and wrath and all that, well, we think that comes from hell, Satan. No, this is the wrath of God, the wrath from God, the wrath that's from the throne of God where God himself rules and reigns. He has complete control over this. The idea of heaven is that this is in God's control and he doesn't do anything spur of the moment, spontaneously, half-hearted, cheap, shoddy in any way, he knows exactly what he's doing. And so I submit to you, verse 17 and 18 must go together because they present to us both a positive and a negative. And the positive side is that the gospel presents to us the magnificent message of Christ who gave himself to be, listen, the wrath absorber for all who believe in him. On the negative side, if you do not receive the wrath-absorbing blessing of Christ by receiving his righteousness, God is presently judging the ungodly who continue to reject him every day, and they will continue to do so until the final day when they are finally judged and eternally separated from God. Additionally, we've noted the universality of the gospel as being for everyone who believes. Praise God, you believe the gospel's for you. But there's a universality in the wrath of God. Do you see it? It's aimed against, literally it says in our text, it is upon all. Not just some, but all. Who rather than believe, choose to remain in ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
Okay, so now we got to figure out what is unright what is ungodliness and unrighteousness. Well, let's consider that. The word unright ungodly speaks of our attitude towards God. I want you to note this. Let me just jump ahead for just a moment. Ungodliness speaks of our attitude towards God, where unrighteousness will speak of our actions toward others. Okay, so we're going to get there. So ungodliness speaks of our attitude towards God. It has to do with our relationship to the sovereign God. You might want to note this as the first, uh, that this is the first sin mentioned by Paul in this letter. The first time he makes mention of anything bad, and he calls it ungodliness. Why would that be so important? Because ungodliness, as we're going to come to see, is the most vile thing in the sight of God. It is being anti-God. The attitude of ungodliness speaks of a lack of reverence or a lack of respect for the Lord as creator. The ungodly disdain God as a person. The ungodly disdain as holy or important the Savior. Ungodliness is not placing God in your highest thoughts. It is not having God in mind at all. The word ungodliness literally means to be unlike God or godless. Or we might say simply without God. If you are without God in your life, you are ungodly. And your ungodliness will lead to the full experience of the wrath of God. Well, the word unrighteousness which I'd have you note in verse 18 is actually repeated. Do you see it at the end of the verse of 18? So he mentions ungodliness first because that's the most vile sin. He mentions unrighteousness twice because he's trying to emphasize it because the way you come to recognize how ungodly you are is by the way that you act and react to others in your unrighteousness. Unrighteousness speaks of our actions towards others. In other words, it has to do with our morality, or we might better say our lack of morality, or our immorality. It speaks of injustices that we perform against one another, wrongdoings against our fellow man. And by the way, your fellow man, then those injustices are probably first and foremost experienced in your own families as parents against children, children against parents, and siblings against one another. As is clear in the word itself, to be unrighteous is not to conform with that which is right. It speaks of anything that's inconsistent with genuine love for our fellow human beings. Paul put these two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness, together. And by doing so, they collectively speak to us of, of mankind's failure to uphold the requirements set forth on the two tablets of God's law. This is a direct thought on Paul saying, you have not kept the Ten Commandments. The first tablet tells us we are to do what? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. The second tablet tells us we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Fallen humanity has not done what God has required and thus is experiencing the wrath of God, and God is just for doing that. Well, let's go on a little bit further, the suppressing of the truth. Paul indicates that 
that those who dwell in ungodliness and unrighteousness, they can be described as those who do not seek the truth. They don't want the truth. They know there's truth, but what do they do with it? They suppress the truth. And the verb suppress is very interesting. It's formed from two words in the Greek, and it carries the idea, if I could say it in this vernacular, you're trying to keep a lid on it, and it's trying to get up. I've used the illustration before. We had a cat that had some problem with its ear, and the vet said, just put a couple of drops in the cat's ear a couple of times a day. I, at the time, weighed about 200 pounds. My cat weighed about 12, and, and it was all I could do to lay my body on that cat to hold him down while my daughter tried to put the drops in the cat's ear, and that 12-pound cat pushed my 200-pound body up well, that's the idea that people know there's truth and they're trying to hold something down that just will not stay down. That's why the gospel prevails no matter how evil things get. Because people are going to try to hold down the truth, they're trying to hinder it, but they can't. The verb is in the present tense. It's the continual nature. Can you imagine always trying to have to hold something down? If somebody's trying to break in those back doors and we're trying to keep them from coming in and they're just keep going and keep going, what happens? We get tired. These people are tired and they're worn. They're trying to hold down the truth, but the truth cannot be held down. Let me be clear that those who hold down or suppress the truth are just as guilty as those who pervert the truth. Both suppressing the truth and perverting the truth makes you a liar. Who suppresses the greatest truth? Whoever suppresses the greatest truth is one who is making the greatest lie. As God is the greatest truth. Therefore, to live as if there is no God is to live the greatest lie. And this is what Paul teaches us. That suppressing the truth is done in the realm or through their practice of unrighteousness. The way people suppress the truth, this is how they do this. It, it, it is, uh, they suppress the truth by failing to live a righteous life. They prefer sinful living. In other words, the more a person practices sinful living, the more their senses are dulled to the truth, that this idea that there's a God who created them and a God to whom they're accountable. So they just keep practicing more and more unrighteousness so as to do what? Dull their senses, try to keep a lid on the truth. I'd also like you to note that Paul specifically says that such unbelievers suppress not simply truth. He didn't say they suppress truth. They suppress what? The truth. Truth. Paul uses the definitive article, and it's telling us then uh, something that we need to understand, what is meant by the truth. As we'll come to see next week, the truth that they are suppressing is the truth about God himself. The truth that God is the creator and the maker of all things. Paul will demonstrate this in verses 19 through 21. This is truth about God in which every unbeliever clearly knows, which every unbeliever clearly perceives. They know this, Paul says in verses 19 through 21, but they refuse to respond to it. They would rather try to keep that lid on the truth. Why? Because this ungodliness, their attitude towards God, 
and this unrighteousness, their sinful action towards others, that the wrath of God is presently revealing, manifesting, being made known, they prefer that because of their sin nature. While this wrath of God is devastating in itself, I remind you it's but a foretaste of the full wrath of God that's yet to come. We read of it in Revelation chapter 15, verse uh, uh, chapter 19, verse 15, where it reads this concerning the Lord Jesus, for from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod and iron, uh, with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Beloved, this is the reality of the wrath of God. I hope it keeps you warm today. As we close, how do we take such heavy thoughts and teachings and make them applicable to us? Let me offer you three considerations. First, if you've not already called upon the name of the Lord, if you've yet to trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope, your only Savior and Lord, would you ask yourself, why would you wait to do so? The wrath of God, just take a look, it's out there. We'll see it more as we look at the rest of chapter 1. You've been made aware that unless you receive the righteousness of Christ by faith, then the wrath of God remains on you. You will perish in your sins, and you will face an eternity enduring the punishment those sins deserve unless you receive the wrath-absorbing blessing of Christ. Second, consider these verses, considering these verses reminds us that we are to be utterly thankful to God for delivering us from his wrath through the wrath-absorbing work of his Son on the cross. And as we praise God for his grace, we, according to the words of 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from what? The wrath to come. However bad you think things are in our culture, and it is a demonstration of the wrath of God, can I say it this way? We ain't seen nothing yet. Third and finally, let the truths of these verses produce in us a prayerfulness, causing us to beseech the Lord to save those who we know are still presently under God's wrath. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, through the cross of Christ, we have been reconciled to you, and we exult in the hope of future glory. In the meantime, we plead for grace to walk uprightly each day of our lives under the power of your sanctifying hand. We are instructed by your word to thank you even for our troubles because we know you use them to work your character in us. Give us clarity of mind and purity of heart to embrace that truth that we might enthusiastically rejoice in our trials knowing that suffering produces Christ-like character. How grateful we are that through the death of Christ we have been saved from your wrath, forgiven our transgressions, washed from all guilt, freed from the law's condemnation, and declared righteous before the very throne of heaven. You not only reconciled us to yourself through Christ, you also commissioned us to be ministers of reconciliation. May we be faithful and fearless ambassadors proclaiming the good news and beseeching sinners to be reconciled 
Keep us humble, Father. May we always be mindful of what we are in ourselves. We are fallen creatures without merit of our own, guilty to the core of our being, justly deserving everlasting destruction. You initiated the reconciliation. You sent us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He supplied everything we need by way of righteousness and redemption. We have nothing of which to boast and everything to be thankful for. You are the one who opened our understanding to see the gospel, and then you opened our hearts to embrace it. Your spirit revealed to us the hidden wisdom which even the rulers of this age do not understand. You gave your son to die in our place, and with him you freely gave us everything we lack. Nothing we could ever do can augment or add merit to what you have already accomplished on our behalf. We simply rest in the perfect finished work of Christ. We receive your love with glad and humble hearts, dear Father. May the spirit of wisdom and revelation unfold to us a yet more intimate knowledge of you. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened. May we know what is the hope of your calling on us. May we realize the riches of the glory of your inheritance. And may we experience the surpassing greatness of your power. We thank you that the work of Christ is applied to us effectually and continually. We know that thereby we are secure in the kingdom of Christ, in the forgiveness of Christ, who has now given us faith and sealed our wills to obedience to you and empowered us to live lives that glorify you. We thank you for these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen. invite you to stand and let's sing once again this new song, I am not, I am not my own, I belong to the Lord. The one who 